Committee. Thank you for uh, getting back to your spots here so we can get to the uh, message this evening. And again, it has been a joy to uh, study through the book of Judges and our stories of grace here. So I thought I'd start off with a question that gets you guys thinking a little bit here. How many people here know the name Henrietta Green? How about her more common name, Hetty? Okay, Hetty Green. See, it's all ringing a bell to every one of us here. Well, Henrietta Hetty Green uh, was an American businesswoman uh, nicknamed the Witch of Wall Street. In fact, she was a financier known as the richest woman in America during the late 1870s all the way up through the early 1900. However, she was also known as America's greatest miser. She died in 1916, leaving an estate valued of over $1 million, and today, fast forward, that would be worth over $24 million. Henrietta Hetty Green. Hetty Green, unfortunately, never enjoyed what she had. In fact, she always ate cold oatmeal. Oatmeal because it was cheap, and cold because she felt it was too expensive to heat up. And in fact, her own son lost his leg to amputation because she spent too much time looking for a free clinic for him to get checked out. By the time the doctor saw his leg, it was too late. The story of Hetty Green leads to the conclusion that this woman had so much, yet she lived like she had nothing. And there's a story in the Bible that we're going to look at tonight as we continue our study in the book of Judges, who resembles Hetty Green pretty closely. As your introduction says, after studying through the first couple chapters of the book of Judges, the first couple Judges, we talked about Othniel and Ehud and Shamgard and, and Deborah, we finally come to a judge that we know a little bit about. We come now to the story of Samson. The more you study the life of Samson, the more that you see, it's easier to see how he became more and more like Hetty Green throughout his life. A man who had everything, but lived like he had nothing. You know, now when we think about Samson, and I have this in your notes there, we, we typically think of a couple things that we know about Samson. We know that he was a Nazarite. He never cut his hair. There were certain requirements set out to be a Nazarite, and cutting your hair was was one of them. Never cut his hair. He was a powerful and strong. He was the, the Hercules of the Old Testament. And as your notes say, he was a heavyweight who was knocked out by a featherweight by the name of Delilah. So that's what we know about Samson, but, but there's more to his life. If you dig in and, and do a little scuba diving into his life, you find that there's so much more that looking at the life of Samson has to teach us. And, we're, you know, we're given the secret of his success. We understand. We know that story already, and we know the secret of his, his strength. Yet God records more information about Samson and things about his life that we can learn from, and we're going to look at them tonight. 
because Samson was a, a judge that God gave more time to in the book of Judges than all of the other judges. In fact, Samson is the only judge in which we read an entire chapter about his mother and father. And we're going to spend some, a part of tonight, most of tonight, talking about Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. I think it's important since God spends times talking about their lives, we're going to look at their lives too. So we'll start with the life and times of Samson's story in Judges chapter 13. We'll start at the beginning. Judges chapter 13, and again, now they are under the rule of the Philistines. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil, there it is again, again, in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. Now, again, the backdrop of this story is the Philistine domination of the Israelites, and these people were Israel's worst nightmare, at least up until this point. And I'll give you a couple points there. They were oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years. More than any other nation, this enemy wasn't conquered until uh, King David actually did away with them many, many years later. Uh, the Israelites were not permitted to do any metal work lest they would make any spears or swords or things like that. In fact, a farmer couldn't sharpen his axe without getting permission from a Philistine. Also, the Israelite rebellion and the apathy was at an all-time high in the life here. This is, this is the one time in the book of Judges that there is no word of repentance and there's no cry for help for Israel. You can look through chapter 13, chapter 14 in the life of Samson, and there's no cry. There's no repentance from the nation. Even the priest at that time, Eli, was immoral. You know, we remember his sons, don't we? Hophni and Phinehas. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel that Eli, even though the priest of Israel, honored his sons more than God. So when we read these chapters, we discover that Israel is silent and the people have become assimilated. They've just come, become more comfortable in their Philistine culture. They've begun to openly intermarry with the, the Philistine women, which was a violation of their Abrahamic covenant. They, they just openly were giving their daughters and sons away in marriage. And uh, they have now arrived at a place where if you look at the story and read it a little bit, you would sit back and wonder, did they even care if they were delivered or not? But now we get introduced to Mr. and Mrs. Manoah in chapter 13, verse 2. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bear not. Now, we're never given Mrs. Manoah's name, but we are given some rather personal information about her. She was barren and bear not. They had no children, and in their mind, the possibility of having a child was far removed from their thinking. But their world is going to be interrupted. In the middle of everything that's going on, look at chapter 13, verse 3. The angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware. 
I pray thee, and drink not wine, nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. In the middle of everything that's going on, the angel of the Lord appears to Mrs. Manoah. And, and what wonderful news this woman hears. She hears words that she, would, she thought she would never hear. Words like conceive. Words like birth. A son. She never thought she would hear those words. And what follows, and, and, and what follows in this, in this text is why the Bible reveals why God chose this couple to be Samson's parents. Notice the words as she runs to tell her husband what she just heard in, in uh, verse 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came unto me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God, very terrible. But I asked him not whence he was, neither told me his name. But he said unto me, Behold, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and now drink no wine nor strong drink, neither eat any unclean thing, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now, Mrs. Manoah, she finds her husband. She goes and tells him, and, and she runs up to him and says, Now, guess what, honey? She says, I saw what looked like to be an angel of the Lord. I saw him today. He appeared to me today. He came to me and he said, you're going to conceive and you're going to give birth to a son. And he's going to be a Nazarite from birth. And I can just imagine Manoah looking at his wife and saying, now, honey, have you been dipping into the wineskins a little bit more than you should have? Because he knew she was barren and he wasn't there but he has to question in his mind, in his heart, really, is this, is this accurate and true? But he doesn't say anything like that. He gives her the respect that she so rightfully deserves. And what corresponds between this couple is uh, a lesson, and, and this is just a real quick intro uh, into the whole lesson here. But they give us a couple things that we can look at that are important in any relationship, they're ingredients to a good marriage. And we see a couple things real, here, real, real quick here in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Manoa. And let me, uh, let me give it to you real quick. First off, there's mutual respect. You see, Manoah never doubts his wife. He never questions her. And again, you remember some of the Old Testament couples who did have an announcement. They always questioned God. Some of them even laughed at him. But Manoah never questions his wife and he believes her story, even as wild as it sounds. And then secondly, there was spiritual oneness. Look at verse 8. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O my Lord, let the man of God which thou didst send come again unto us and teach us that we, what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. Manoah's wife comes to him with the news, and Manoah immediately uh, takes it to God and leads his wife in prayer. He didn't question her at all, but he goes immediately to, to God. At this crisis, at this crossroads in their life, what does he do? He says, honey, hey, we better pray about this. We better pray about this. 
And folks, we so often run everywhere else but God in crossroads and crisis in our lives. But not Manoah. He goes immediately to God. So there's this spiritual oneness. And, and now the angel of the Lord reappears to, to this couple. And not to give them some child training uh, tricks and things like that, but the Spirit of the Lord comes to them again. The angel of the Lord comes to them. Look at verse 17. And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name that, we, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? Now again, Manoah still doesn't recognize this as the angel of the Lord. A quick theology there. This is what's called a theophany, where basically it's a slight appearance of God's glory. In the Old Testament. Because no one has ever seen God in all his glory and lived. But the angel of the, the angel of the Lord comes in. And, my, and Manoah says, oh, by the way, he said, man, we, we better pray about this. And by the way, what is your name? And I love the angel of the Lord's response. Look at verse 18. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, why askest thou thus? After my name, seeing it is secret. It's actually a tremendous response because the word secret there means it could literally be translated incomprehensible. Why are you asking me my name? Because it is incomprehensible. It's too wonderful. In our American terminology, we would say it's too much. Manoah, why are you asking me my, my name? Because you can't understand it. It's too much for your small mind. Why are you asking me my name? Look at verse 19. And so Manoah took a kid with a meat offering and offered it upon a rock unto the Lord. And the angel did wondrously. And Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came to pass when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar and Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces onto the ground. And that tells us the wonder that the angel of the Lord did and performed before them. Now down to verse 22. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. But his wife said unto him, If the Lord were, were pleased to kill us, he would not have received a burnt offering and a meat offering at our hands Neither would he have showed us all these things, nor would as at that time have told us such things as these. I can hear Manoah saying to his wife, because he comes back and says, you know, we, we should die. That's what he says in verse, in verse 22, we shall surely die. And his wife comes back and says, no, 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 that's not the case. Because if God wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted our offerings. And I could hear Manoah saying to his wife, he said, you're right, you're right, honey, I didn't think about that. Which leads me to our third ingredient for a healthy marriage, and I want us all to understand this. Third ingredient is mutual teachability, where the spiritual leader in the home allows his wife to instruct him. Not only this dedicated couple uh, to each other is obvious, but their dependence on God is, is also, and we need to understand that God, God has not really come through for this couple in their life at this time. You see, in the Old Testament times, barren wives were uh, considered to be under some sort of punishment 
So they, they were looked at as God, under God's punishment for some reason. And then also, uh, financial prosperity was a sign that God was blessing the people, but Manoah was just a poor farmer. So they were looked at as, as, as God hasn't come through for them, and this couple had every reason to believe that God had abandoned not only Israel, but them. They're looking at their lives, they're looking at everything around them, and where they are at this stage, this stage in their life, they're saying, God must have abandoned us, and now their life is interrupted with this. So I want to interject at this point uh, one of our first principles. I, I've come up with eight principles for us. Hopefully, I'll get through them all. By, by 9.30, quarter to 10, I should be done. But the one thing I love most about the Word of God is it is so applicable for our lives if we allow it to work in our hearts. So I come up with eight principles. Let me give you the first one here based on the life of Manoah and his wife. Principle application number one, it is possible to have the best of life in the worst of times. You see, folks, it wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy time to live at this time in their lives. It wasn't easy to love. It wasn't easy to believe. It wasn't easy to trust. It was a terrible time to raise a family. The Philistines' dominating immorality was rampant. It was unchecked. It was all over the place. The question I would ask each and every one of us is, has it ever, have we ever considered the fact that there has never been an easy time to live a godly, secure life? Has it ever been easy to have a marriage that honors God? Has it ever been easy to raise a godly family? Has it ever been easy just to, care, to, to just walk through our Christian life? Has it ever been easy? And I would answer that personally with a resounding no. It's never been a cakewalk for anything that we do as believers. Let me read you a quote from a national periodical. It says this, The world is too big for us, too much going on, too many crimes, too much violence and excitement. Try as you will, to get you get behind in the race. It is a strain to keep pace, and still you lose ground. Science empties its discoveries on you so fast that you stagger beneath them in hopeless bewilderment. The political world is news seen so rapidly, you're out of breath trying to keep pace with who is in and who is out. Everything is high pressure. Human nature cannot endure much more. Man, that sounds like it was out of this morning's Philadelphia Inquirer. Let me share with you. It was from the uh, Atlantic Journal dated 1833. It's never been easy. Ever. From Mr. and Mrs. Manoa's life to 1833 to 2018 and, the, and, and beyond. It's never been easy. Has the world ever been secure? Has it ever been easy? Take it from Mr. and Mrs. Manoa that even in difficult times like theirs, it is possible to have a life that honors God. And life was difficult and trying and immoral as it, as it is today, and yet we find in this passage a very challenging and refreshing story of marital love and commitment. And so I want to take that and build on that with some lessons from the life of of um, Samson's story here in Judges chapter, the end of chapter 13 and chapter 14. Because something drastically changed in Samson's life. 
somewhere between chapter 13 and chapter 14. We're not told what it is, but we know something happens. And now, Mr. and Mrs. Manoa uh, were committed parents. They were, they were a mom and dad that were committed to raising their son, a Nazarite, as he was called to be. They did their job as the best that they could. But look at chapter 13, verse 24 and 25. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Estel. Now, the word move there, it's a very interesting word. It's, it's a word that's used of a musical instrument that is being tuned by the musician. So, Samson is being tuned by God for service. Samson is being moved as a young child to be used of God. However, the first few words in Judges chapter 14 shout problems. Something's wrong. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, understand this. Samson's hair was long. He had never had a haircut. He never touched a wine skid because, again, that is part of the Nazarite vow. He never touched a dead body. These are the three standards that uh, Numbers chapter 6 says for a Nazarite that they must uphold for, for life. He never did any of those three. Yet we find Samson headed down to a Philistine village to pick out a wife. What's the problem? Leads me to principle number two. Samson understood the code of separation, but he missed the concept of holiness. And I believe the same thing exists in our world today, the balance between how we look and what we are on the inside. We understand Samson had everything on the outside. He had the long hair. He looked like a Nazarite. He smelled like a Nazarite. He talked like a Nazarite. Everything on the outside looked exactly what everybody would say, oh, there's a is a Christian. But on the inside, he was an infidel. Allow me to read what Elizabeth Elliot writes about a young man many, many years uh, before her time who was eager to follow Jesus Christ. And this young man asked a multiple, uh, uh, multiple people who were strong Christians at that time, he asked them this question. He says, what must I forsake besides sin to be a better Christian. And here are the responses. Forsake colored clothing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments. If you are sincere about following Christ, do not take warm baths and never shave your beard. To shave is to attempt to improve on the work of Him who created us. That was written in the second century, only 150 years after Jesus Christ. So, the outside appearance was so important that you had to look the part, and you had to forsake everything, and you couldn't even shave, and I'm assuming this is just for the men. But you can't shave because you're changing the appearance of what God called for you. 
Samson's physical appearance was actually more to him because it actually marked who he was. And I don't want to turn this into a, uh, an out, a legal list of type of a, a, a message or something like that, but I remember when I first got saved, I got saved in May 1979. And when I got saved in 1979, the fashion was for guys were to have longer hair, you know, like longer. Like I didn't have ponytail hair, but I had long hair. It was over my ears, over my collar. It was, always, it was always fine. It was looking good. I got a picture in my office. You want to buy me a cup of coffee? I'll show you. But it was long. I, I wanted to put it up on the screen. I said, no, no, somebody would use that later in the wrong way, so I'm not going to do that. But I got saved. And, and, and at that time, we had a friend of ours who, who, who would cut my hair, and I always wanted it still long. But as I grew in my walk with the Lord, it got shorter and shorter. And shorter. Why? Because I because the Bible says you gotta have you gotta have it above your ears and it can't touch your collar and things. No, 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 no. But I wanted to look more like a believer what I thought the word of God says than what the world is. I wanted the people to say, hey, they, they, they always say I look different, but he looks different for a reason. Why are, why do you look different? Well, let me tell you why, especially my friends. Because I got saved and God changed my heart. But, but nowadays, if you talk about appearance in a church, this is in your notes here, when you mention how a person is to dress, you are called a legalist. You are called a legalist. So let me ask you a question. Was the Apostle Paul a legalist? Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array. Now, the Apostle Paul's telling women, don't wear gold, don't wear pearls, and he tells them, stay away from exorbitantly priced clothing. And all the husbands in here tonight are saying, amen, Rick, preach it, brother. Honey, he's preaching the whole counsel of God. Listen to him. Right? But here's the point. In Paul's day, it was the harlot who braided her hair. And she braided her hair because she wore a backless dress. And so the braiding of the hair would show more of her back. It was advertisement. And she, she would wear gold and she would walk. She would have so much jewelry on that she would make noise, tinkle, or whatever, as she walked down the street. It was an advertisement. And because her profession was so profitable, she had the, the money to buy the best clothing, the best material, so she did. And all it was was to draw attention to her. The problem is, for us as believers, we don't want to draw attention to us. We want to draw attention to God. So that's why my hair got shorter. That's why I... I, I I dress the way that I do. We, we do what we do. The problem with Samson, he, was, he, he, he uh, followed the outside standards, but he ignored the inner holiness. His hair was long, but his heart was disobedient. Which leads me to principle number three. Principle of application number three. Anyone who ignores internal quality will be governed by external attractions. Again, look at chapter 14, verse 1. 
And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me to wife. Now, the custom of that day was to have the parents arrange the marriage. And it's interesting in this text because in the Hebrew word, the word woman, it's, it's emphasized. So if I, could, if I could say it and paraphrase what Samson is saying here, he says, here she says this. He says, Dad and Mom, I was in Tinna the other day, and I saw a woman. Get her for me. Now, there's nothing wrong with physical attraction. By the way, I married the woman who knocked me out when I first saw her. In fact, it's 37 years ago today that we stood at an altar and said, I do. I met her at Warrington Country Club. And I looked at her and she knocked me out right away. So since I couldn't take her to dinner today, I bought you these. Happy anniversary, my dear. Listen to me, people. Listen to me. Looking and finding someone attractive is not the problem. The problem is looking at the wrong person. That's the problem with Samson. He looked where he shouldn't have been looking. He was looking in the wrong direction, and, and now we get to see his parents' response. Look at verse 3. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all my people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me. Now, there was quite a falling out about this, and I'm sure you could have heard this three blocks down because Mr. and Mrs. Manoa were going crazy saying, we raised you a Nazarite. We've done our best for you. Now it's time for you to choose your wife. Is there no one from all of our people that you can find to marry? You've got to marry one of them. And they were completely right. But you can almost see Samson clenching his teeth after they say that in defiance saying, get her for me. She pleases me. It's amazing the first recorded words of Samson where I saw a woman and ultimately that's what's going to take his life in the end. Which leads me to number four. Principle number four is this. A parent fully committed to the Lord may never reap godliness in a child. There are people in this auditorium this evening who have children who have completely rejected their parents' spiritual values. I understand that. We all know families like that. And it is completely possible for spiritual parents to raise children who decide to reject their values. And Samson was one of them. He had been given so much, but he rejected 
it all. He, look, at, look, I think it's in your notes. Look at what Samson squandered. He had a miraculous childbirth. They weren't supposed to even have children. And I'm sure they told him more than a couple times how miraculously he was brought into their lives. He had a miraculous childbirth. He had godly parents who loved the Lord. They loved each other. They were great examples. He was blessed with a unique mission from God. He was empowered by the Spirit of God to do the work. And he had all of that, yet he said goodbye to it all. The name Samson means sunny. Now, sunny was the light of his parents' lives, but he grew up and he broke their hearts. And when he came home and said, I've seen a woman in Timnah, and I won her, I think their world fell apart. Which leads me to principle of application number five. Samson's life mirrored the failure of Israel as a nation. You can put them right side by side. They run parallel. Samson's life is a sermon all by itself. And look at the way that it reflected Israel's failure. First off, Samson refused the authority of God's word, and so did Israel. They were idolatrous, and they were intermarrying with the Philistines. Samson refused the parameters of his Nazarite vow, and Israel rejected their covenant. Samson refused the counsel of his godly parents, and Israel refused to listen to the counselors. Judges chapter 14, verse 3, the end of it says, she pleases me. In verse 7, again, it says, she pleased Samson well. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse in the book of the Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The nation of Israel did whatever looked good to them. And let me add a sixth principle here at this time. Principle number six, the failure of God's people never derails the purposes of God. God's intentions do not become paralyzed by our sin. Because God is sovereign and God's work will go on. Samson's going to fulfill his des destiny that he had begun in his life because he was beginning to deliver Israel even though he didn't even know it. He didn't even know it. Look at chapter 14, verse 5. And then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath. And behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he rent him as he would have rent a kid. He had nothing in his hand, but he told not his father or his mother what he had done. Down to verse 8. And after a time, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother. And he gave them, and they did eat. But he told not them that he'd taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Why did Samson not tell his parents what he did? Because it would have broken his Nazarite vow. He would have told them that he broke that vow. Because he had violated it, he touched the dead body of an animal. But does God strike Samson down? No. Does God send fire from heaven? No. No. In fact, Samson brashly turns this episode into a wedding, uh, a riddle at his wedding party. Look at verse uh, 10. So his father went down unto the woman, and Samson made there a feast, for so used the young men to do. Now, we have a problem here. That word feast can be interpreted drinking party. Another break of the vow. He touched a dead body. Now he's having a drinking party with his friends. But on occasion here, uh, did God thunder down from heaven again? No. Did God's judgment fall down on Samson? No. Even though Samson was sinning, God was still fulfilling his purposes. But Samson made a huge mistake. 
It made a huge mistake, and I'm afraid it's one that Christians make a lot also. Because in your notes it says, Samson took God's silence as approval. Samson took God's silence as approval, which leads me to principle number seven. One of the most deceptive incentives to sin is the idea that God does not seem to be in a hurry to execute judgment. You see, we can, we can live our lives in rebelling against God, and He may never, He may never strike us down. However, our lives will pay many times over for the penalty of our, our sin. And our foolish hearts can be so deceived that we think because God doesn't strike us that everything is okay. That's what the Bible says. The heart's deceitful above anything and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So I know if I'm living in sin and God doesn't do anything, I guess it's okay. And Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, knows what he's talking about when he pens in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 7, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. Let me put that in English, Collegeville English. Because God doesn't zap us right away. Our hearts continue to just do what we want to do. So I want you to write this down. I don't think I put it in your notes, but I want you to write this down. It's really, if you get anything out of tonight's message, take this and take it home with you and chew on it all week. But I want us to understand this. Sin would not be so attractive if the wages were paid immediately. If you knew that the second after you commit that sin that you were going to pay for it, would you do anything differently? Sin would not be so attractive if the wages were paid immediately. When God's judgment does come, and it will come, we need to understand, we still, even as believers, reap what we sow. So Samson's going to get away with it for 20 years, but God's going to eventually call. So Samson continues with his sinful lifestyle uh, in verses 12 to 16. The, he throws a party. Uh, look at verse 12. And Samson said unto them, I will now put forth a riddle unto you, if you can certainly declare it to me within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 sheets and 30 chains of garments. So he, he puts a riddle out to all his guests there. Uh, and so uh, we, know that, we, know that, we know what he's talking about. We know he's talking about the, the honey that was in the, in the lion. But they don't know. So he, he, he gives them a challenge. There's a riddle. If, if, you, if you figure it out, I will give you all a garment of clothing, 30 pieces of clothing. But if you don't, you give me 30 pieces. So they, uh, they try and they think about it and they, they, um, they figure out that, hey, if we don't, if we don't figure this out, we've got to give him like 30 Easter outfits. So we better figure this out. So they figure, well, we can't. So they go to his wife. 
And they put pressure on his wife in verse uh, 16 and 17. And Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost but hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people and hast not told it to me. I'm trying to say it as a woman, which I tried to told it to me. And he said to, unto her, Behold, I have not told it to my father nor my mother, and shall I tell it to thee? And she wept before him the seven days while their feast lasted. And it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her because she lay sore upon him and she told him the riddle to the children of her people. Now, gentlemen, you know what this means? It means the wives have been doing it to their husband for 5,000 years. But Samson lasted more than most of us. He lasted seven days. But she went at him every day. You're mocking me. Tell me the riddle. You, you, you made a riddle and, 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 you know, they threatened her. So he tells the riddle to his wife. Which leads me to our last principle. Principle of application number eight. A person controlled by passions may never gain insight from their past. You see, Samson did not learn from this experience. And very often, we do not learn from our mistakes either unless we allow God to work in our lives. The word lay sore there in verse 17, it's used there in verse 17, it means pressed. Uh, it means that Samson is being pressed to tell his secret to his wife. And, and she's pressing him, she's, she's pressuring him. And he gives in and he tells her, and you know what happened to the story, you know, he loses his wife. But two chapters later in chapter 16, he has another woman pressuring him. He never learned from the first experience. Because a person who's controlled by their passions may never gain insight from their past. So he ultimately gives away the secret that will jeopardize his life. And one pastor said this, I believe I put it in your notes, a person who is controlled by their emotions and passions is a person who is floating through the sea of life without a compass. They are moving without understanding. You know, it's interesting, folks, the, the last mention of Samson's parents is found in Judges chapter 16, verse 31, says this, Then his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Estoel in the burying place of Manoah his father, and he judged Israel 20 years. God obviously evidently gave Manoah and Mrs. Manoah some more children. But Samson... Samson was a man who had it all, but lived like he had nothing. It's a lot of principles of application for us throughout this story. I pray that you think through these. Because God doesn't want any of his children to live a life like Hetty Green or Samson. Let's pray together. Father, again, Lord, I do. I thank you for the familiar stories that as we look, you can teach us new things. And I thank you for teaching me.
but you can't teach what you haven't learned. So I pray that you help each and every one of us to learn some of these principles of application for our own lives from the life of Mr. and Mrs. Manoa and their son. I ask, Lord, help each and every one of us to examine our own hearts and our own lives. Are we just external in our holiness or is it true internal holiness? Because we are all as holy as we want to be. So I ask you, Lord, to examine each and every one of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 1 today. John chapter 1 this morning. If you would like to follow along, if you didn't bring your Bible with you, I know many of you have it on the phone, but there's one there at the bench in front of you. Uh, John chapter 1. This year we have learned a great deal about the Holy Spirit of God as our series is entitled Empowered by His Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Bible says that He is a person. The Bible says that he is the third member of the Trinity. He is equal to the Father and to the Son. The Holy Spirit right now is at work all over the world, and the work that he does is convicting of people of sin in their conscience and pointing them to the answer, and that is pointing them to Jesus Christ. And then he does the work of regeneration. Uh, that is the, the work of to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible says that the Holy Spirit gives every Christian spiritual gifts. We all have spiritual gifts that we can serve one another in a church. We can edify and build up one another. And then I love this one. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit seals us to the day of redemption, which means that once you become a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do to make God stop loving you. You will never lose your salvation, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. When we go our own way, when we do our own thing, even as a Christian, it is the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us in our conscience, and He draws us back to the ways of God. Now, there's one more thing that the Holy Spirit gives, and that is this, power, His power, the power of God. I'd like you to see that with me today. If you would, please stand as I read from John chapter 1, and we begin in verse 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, Jesus, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. May we pray. Our Father, we are thankful that we can open up the Bible today and learn how that heaven can be our home and that our sins can be forgiven and that we can have a personal relationship with the living Savior, Jesus Christ. May you quiet our hearts, draw our attention away from the cares of the world, and may we focus on the message and the help and the love that you offer to each one of us at this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Don't you like to learn new things? I do. Learning something new every day. Now, there are a lot of benefits when you make the choice that you're going to keep learning. 
you're either, you're either learning or you're dying. So I, I hope that you want to learn new things. And here are some benefits of learning new things. It keeps your brain cells active. And I think for most of us, that's an important thing, especially the older you get. Uh, but when you learn new things, it aids your spiritual growth. You learn more about God, more about the Bible, more about how to live, how to love, how to forgive. Uh, learning new things makes you more successful. And when you learn new things, you're able to help others. But as I learn new things, what I discover is the more that I learn, the more that I discover what I don't know. Uh, I, there's so much that I don't know or so much that I forget that I did learn. And so uh, here are some things that I just, I just don't understand. So something I don't understand about history. Why did Japanese kamikaze pilots wear crash helmets? <laughs> I just don't understand that, do you? Um, and then things I don't understand about stuff. Why does lemonade have imitation flavoring, but furniture polish contain real lemon juice? <laughs> don't understand that. And you know, there's even some things in the Bible that I just don't understand. Why didn't Noah swat both mosquitoes when he was on the ark? I mean, you had eight people on that ark for nearly a year, and, and just... They could, have, they could have eradicated mosquitoes uh, from the planet uh, very quickly, and, and they, didn't, they didn't do it. Here's some things I just don't understand about the world. I don't understand how gravity works. Uh, I don't understand it. Now, I'm glad most of the time. Uh, if you think you understand gravity, can you explain to me a black hole in outer space that nobody has ever seen? Just, I just don't understand. I know light bends and they say it's there, but I don't really understand it. Something I don't understand about science. If man evolved from monkeys and apes, why do we still have monkeys and apes? Shouldn't they be on that family tree long time ago? Why is it that if someone tells you that there are a trillion stars in the universe, you will believe them? But if they tell you that, that the wall has wet paint, you have to touch it <laughs> to see if what they're saying is really true. Now, here's one. Why do your feet smell and your nose runs? <laughs> Why do celebrities spend their entire lives trying to become well-known and famous? And then they wear dark, class, dark glasses so no one will recognize them. <laughs> Does that make sense? Now, here's some things that are, are a bit more serious. Things I just don't understand about cancer. Things I don't understand about disease. Why does it randomly touch some people and not others? Things I don't understand about people. Why won't they forgive? Why won't they forgive? And one more. I don't fully and completely understand God's power. I believe in it, and I have experienced it as many of you have, and I have a great desire to release God's power in my life through faith and obedience to Christ. Now, to help us to understand the power of the Holy Spirit, God chose the word pneuma, Greek word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. And pneuma is the same word for wind as it is for spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. 
I just don't understand some things about the spirit and about wind. If I take, if I take a piece of paper and if I, if I blow air underneath it, what's it going to do? It's going to move. It's going to lift up, right? We know that. See that? But if I take the same piece of paper and I blow air on top of it, I would expect that nothing would happen. That's what I would expect. But when I do, this is what happens. I don't understand that. Now, if I blow underneath it, that makes sense. But to blow on top of it, uh, for the paper to be able to, to rise and to lift, I just, I just don't understand it. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You know, for most of human history, the secret of the power of the wind has been a secret. Watch. Before there were airplanes, before there were trains, there were sailboats. Without them, the world as we know it would not exist. Square-rigged sailboats brought Europeans to America. Their stable decks and massive holds carried the people and supplies that would build San Francisco. But these ships of old had their limitations. They were slow, and they only went in one basic direction, with the wind. Square-rigged sailboats work um, by using sails as kind of more of a drag device than a lifting device, like a parachute. A lot has changed. Today's sailboats supply very different principles to harness the power of wind and wave. So if you want to master modern sailboats, you better learn some physics. So why did the wind shift, just because? The Quest team attempted to do just that on a recent sailing lesson at Modern Sailing Academy in Sausalito, California. I think students, uh, when they first come here, they know that the wind will push the boat because they see like a plastic bag being pushed across the street. So they, they can understand right away that the boat can be pushed, but what they have to learn is the boat can also go into the wind by using aerodynamics. Just like an airplane wing, the sail can lift the boat into the wind. So that allows us to go almost any direction we want to go, except for directly into the wind. Okay, hang on now, go straight. Go straight for just a second. You gotta get the boat and speed back up. This secret of aerodynamics hasn't been understood in most of human history, but if you look in your notes, you see that the secret of the power of the wind was discovered by an 18th century physicist named Bernoulli. Wind that goes over a curved object goes faster, and that creates a suction that today we call low pressure. And the result of that is lift or power. And so when I, when I blow on top of the piece of paper where it's curved, that air is going to go faster. And what that does is that creates a, a suction. If I were to take a, an empty bottle and I were to suck all the air that I could out of the plastic bottle, that's low pressure. And then the high pressure outside, it, as soon as I pull my lips away, that air is going to go in there. And so uh, faster moving air creates lower pressure, which is going to be on the top, and the wind blowing across an airplane wing or a sail uh, or a piece of paper creates a low pressure, 
which creates the lift as the high pressure fills that vacuum. Does that make sense? So, so can, a, can a sailboat, can it go faster than the wind? Can it go faster than the wind? So if the wind is going 20 miles an hour, can the sailboat go faster than 20 miles an hour? And you know, most sailboats, the answer is no, but the answer is yes, they can. In fact, these high-speed sailboats, like with the America's Cup, they can go three times faster than the wind. How can that be? Well, in the same way that an airplane lift lifts up, uh, the wing of an airplane, if you notice, the bottom is flat, then there's the curve. So when the air hits it, it's going faster, and it creates lift. It creates power, and a sail is simply a wing that is on its side. A modern sailboat can go three times faster than the wind, easily up to 27 knots or 50 miles per hour. It is really pretty amazing. The power of the wind can run windmills. The power of the wind uh, can turn generators and pump water and create electricity. And yes, it can push sailboats faster than the wind. Wind helps the trees to grow deeper roots. But more amazing than the power of the wind is the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I can experience. And we see that on page uh, two there of your notes. Just as Bernoulli discovered the secret power of the wind, so the New Testament writers, led by God, revealed the power of the spiritual wind, the Holy Spirit of God. My message is entitled, The Evidence of the Holy Spirit is Revealed in Power. The power, first of all, of salvation. And we see that in verse 12. But as many as received him to receive Jesus, he gave power, the power to become the children of God. Verse 11 says he came into his own. That's the Jewish people, but they rejected him. Who is this Jesus? Well, if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 1, the apostle John identifies who Jesus is. Look with me in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and that's Jesus, capital W. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And I'll say it with me. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is God. That's who he is. Jesus Christ is the creator. He made everything. And then in verse 12, he gives this power. What kind of power? Power to become his child, to be born. Notice that in verse 13, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, to be born of God. Well, what does that mean? Turn over one page to John chapter 3. Jesus is in a conversation with a very religious Jewish leader, a ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3, Jesus says to this ruler, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's our physical birth. Uh, that is what Isabella just had four months ago. Uh, and then that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And that's a spiritual birth. Look at verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. And so the Bible tells us that everyone is born once and that we all need to be born a second time, a spiritual birth. Look at verse 16, the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world, that's you, that's me, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, that's hell, 
but have everlasting life, that's heaven. God wants to take you to heaven, and he proved it by showing his love, by letting his son uh, take our penalty for us. Now, this evidence of the Holy Spirit revealed in the power of salvation, how do I, how do I know if I have experienced this power in salvation? Well, you'll know. You'll know. And here's how. First of all, you'll have full assurance that heaven is your home. Full assurance that heaven is your home. I've had people tell me, oh, you can't know you're going to heaven. You can't know for sure. I've had people tell me that. I've had people say, only people who are prideful say they know they're going to heaven. Do you know that the opposite is true? It takes someone who is humble to say, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Jesus Christ died for me and rose again, and I receive him. That takes humility to be able to admit that you need help, that you need a Savior uh, to come into your heart and forgive your sins. And so the first thing that, that God gives to us is this full assurance that heaven is my home. Look with me in your notes there. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, our gospel, the good news that Jesus died for us, came unto you in word, not in word only, but in power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So God tells us that you can know for sure that heaven's your home. And so I ask you that question today. Do you know if you died today, you'd go to heaven or do you have some doubt? If you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die, maybe you have not yet received God's gift. Maybe you know about God, but you don't yet know him in a personal way, and God wants you to have assurance. God wants you to know for sure that heaven is your home. It's right there in black and white. The second thing the power of salvation reveals is this, this confidence. We are confident that our sins are forgiven in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Christian, Christian, you are free from the penalty of sin. You are free from the guilt of your past sin. You are free from the shame that sin brings in your heart. God can heal the pain of your past. No matter what you've said, no matter what you've done, no matter what anyone else has done to you, the power of the Spirit is able to heal your heart and you can have confidence that your sins are gone. Listen to these powerful words that have been added to the hymn Amazing Grace. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. He's bought me. He purchased me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. The evidence of the power of the Spirit in salvation is that you know you're going to heaven and that you're confident that your sins are forgiven. And I believe you can feel it. I believe you can feel that your sins are forgiven. You say it's a feeling? Oh, yes. Uh, it, it is a feeling based upon a fact that Jesus died for me and rose again. And yes, I can feel forgiven because I have this, this power of salvation in my life. So the evidence of the Holy Spirit is revealed in the power of salvation, but also in the power of transformation. Jesus Christ is more than a Savior. He is our Lord. He is our master. He is our mentor. And the time that we spend with him, the more time we spend with him, the more we become like him. 
We're his disciples. It's this slow transformation for most people, but it is a transformation. Just as a Christian, uh, uh, as Christians, we are changing. And, and like that ugly caterpillar becomes a beautiful butterfly, this is the transformation that happens to our personality. Uh, we change from being selfish and prideful and self-centered, and we become loving, kind, forgiving. We become more like Jesus. We say Christ-like. So how does that happen? Well, look with me on page three of your notes. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And so what happens is it's, it's spiritual fruit. On Wednesday night, Brother Rick Schneider is teaching through the book of Judges, and he told his personal salvation story, how God came into his life and how, how things began to change slowly, the Holy Spirit changing his personality, transforming him. And so three specific evidences are mentioned here in the spiritual fruit of Romans 15, 13. You can underline them in your notes. Joy and peace and hope. Joy, peace, hope. I want to ask you today, do you have joy? Do you have joy in your heart? Do you have peace? Do you have hope? Now, this is not a, a hope so hope. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. No, no. This is a confident hope. Jesus is our blessed hope. We, we have this, this confidence in Christ. Joy, peace, and hope. Do you have it? Are we filled with the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in our personality and God begins to change us? And as the Holy Spirit begins to fill the sails of our life, the captain of our sailboat, Jesus, uses this power, this energy of the spiritual wind, the Holy Spirit, to direct us to new places and, and gives us new attitudes and we speak new words and we perform new actions. You know, two weeks ago, I, I showed you a, a video testimony of just a brilliant Jewish scientist who uh, is a professor at Rice University, and he became a Christian. His name is Professor James Tour. And this morning, I want you to listen to another testimony, and this is of an atheist doctor who became a Christian. Watch. I was going from one thing to the next. So, you know, I would buy a new car, and then when that didn't do it, I'd go out and buy clothes or take a trip. And then I went through hobbies. You know, I did triathlons. I did running. I took up wine as a hobby. I mean, on and on the list goes. Dr. Greg Veeman was convinced he had everything he needed to find happiness. The successful career, the lifestyle, but it never seemed to be enough. It was a combination of you're sad, you're empty, and yet at the same time, you're kind of angry and frustrated because you're thinking, well, why? You know, what's wrong with me? You know, why aren't I fulfilled? Why don't I feel like I have achieved what I worked my whole life for? And so you're embarrassed. You're not going to tell anyone, so you keep it inside. And then what you end up doing is taking it out on other people. He also had all the answers. His wife, Ruth, explains. He was, I mean, he was, a, he was good, but he had a short fuse. He was arrogant. He was always right. He's the type of person, he's his own person, he's the boss. You know, he always did well his whole life. He was always number one at everything. Greg was quick to take issue with others, including his Christian neighbors, who Greg thought were giving his family the cold shoulder. And I'm going to get a Bible, and I'm going to prove to them that they're not practicing what they preach. Greg started reading the Bible, 
and was shocked by what he learned. I realized that Jesus was claiming to be God in the flesh, the God-man on earth. And I never heard that before. So that quickly got my attention because I realized if it did happen, it was the most important event in human history. And if it didn't happen, then it was just a religious fairy tale that someone made up. So I quickly forgot about the neighbors and decided, hey, I need to find out if this really happened. I really got interested when I heard Luke's prologue where he says, you know, that he checked everything out because he's a doctor and doctors would normally disprove miracles, not authenticate them. While Greg's curiosity was academic, Ruth had been on her own search for truth and accepted Christ as her savior. She knew her husband needed more than a subject to study. I was worried about his salvation. I would tell my friends in the Bible study, I'm worried about Greg. You know, he's never going to accept the Lord. When I told Greg, you know, there's a place called hell and it's real. And, you know, if you don't believe, you might go there. And I was praying for him. I really was. It got to a point where I was just like, I give up. You know, I was like, really? I'm like, God, you've got you to do something. Greg spent weeks studying and researching. He realized Christianity hinged on one event, the resurrection. I started before looking for every possible explanation that would say it didn't happen. You know, did Jesus, maybe he didn't die. Well, that wasn't true. Even in the Journal of the American Medical Association, doctors had concluded that he definitely died. Uh, maybe the apostles stole the body. I mean, maybe they were seeing hallucinations, all these different theories. But the problem was none of them were credible. None of them made sense. The only explanation from the historical facts, the way it was set up with the Roman guards and everything, was that the tomb was empty and he actually rose. The real thing that got me was the Apostle Paul, because here's a guy, he's Jewish, he's killing Christians, he has nothing to gain. What in the world could make this guy go and be the greatest evangelist ever? There was only one explanation, and that was with, that he saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So when I looked at the resurrection, looked at the evidence of these guys and their changed lives, I said, I, I have to believe it. Now Greg had the answer, or at least he thought he did. Christianity is okay, you know, he really did it. And if you believe and he sees that you go to church and you're trying to do the right thing, then when you die, you'll go to heaven. I mean, what more could there be? Greg was about to find out. It started after he treated a walk-in patient at work. I went in, you know, told him if he had any questions to ask me. And he was just staring me like dead in the eye. And that's when he came out and just said, have you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior? And I about passed out. I wasn't expecting that. And I, all this other stuff was happening at the same time. I'm like, well, how does he know? Why is he asking me this? Who is this guy? And I kind of just bolted out of the room and says, I'll be right back because I didn't know what to do. A few nights later, Greg began thinking about his life. There were things in my life that I, you know, wanted to change, you know, the anger, the frustration, but I didn't have the power to change. And so it just kind of all culminated where I just kind of broke down crying and asking God to forgive me and basically just, you know, kind of repented of my sins and asked him to change me and that I, I wanted to, you know, live a new life. The very next morning, Greg noticed something was different. I was just like completely peaceful. I wasn't frustrated. I wasn't feeling angry. I felt content for no reason. 
So I quickly expected everything to dissipate and go back. But as I began to live that day, I realized, you know, hey, there's something really different. So if I was different and feeling completely different, I had to have been changed or something in my biochemistry of my body had to be changed. I said, well, maybe somehow my antihistamine got switched out for something like Valium. So I went and checked my medicines, and of course, you know, that wasn't it. Greg found out why he felt different in the Book of Romans, Chapter 6. Basically, what it said in there was that when you become a believer and get saved, and the Holy Spirit comes into you, which is something I was completely unaware of, that the old person that you were somehow dies. And then it cross-referenced that to Galatians 5.22, which talks about how the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And I'm like, you know, hey, that's it. That's, that's how I feel. I've got that list. Later that night, Greg told Ruth what happened. It was a miracle to me because I didn't ever think that Greg could ever change. He was suddenly concerned about other people, which shocked me. Greg went looking for the patient who had talked to him. The problem was his name wasn't on the schedule anymore. I mean, it was handwritten in ink, and I knew exactly when it was, and it's not there. And I checked for like the whole month, and the guy basically wasn't there. His record was completely gone. There was no evidence that he ever came in the, in the office. Greg says while there's no doubt the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are true, the real proof is in his changed life. I would say since the day I was saved, I've never felt alone. I've never felt empty. I've never felt all of that discontentment and stuff. I feel like I'm married to a different person. I feel like my old husband is not around anymore, and I've got this new husband who's awesome. For Greg, the truth is clear. Every other religion is man seeking God. Christianity is God seeking man. There's a real test for Christianity. You call on Christ, put him to the test. He won't just forgive your sins, but he's going to change you right now so that you know that it's true. And that's a big difference. Dr. Dr. Greg Lehman is testifying of the power of salvation and the power of transformation. If you want to share that story with others, you can go to YouTube, search Atheist Doctor Converts to Christianity, and that is what will come up. In your notes there, you can see the quote from Ruth Lehman. It was a miracle to me because I didn't think that Greg could ever change. He was suddenly concerned about other people, which shocked me. That's a transformation. Uh, that's what happens. That's spiritual fruit. The second thing I want you to see is the forsaking of sin. As Christians, we are forgiven. We will never become sinless. We're never going to become perfect. But as we grow, we sin less and less and less. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves show of us of what manner of entering in we had unto you. How you turn from God, I'm sorry, from uh, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turn from their idols. Now, when we think of idols, we think of, we think of the people that, uh, that bow down before big statues of Buddha. You say, we're not idolatrous in America. We don't have any Buddha statues. No, no, an idol is anything between you and God, anything between you and Christ. That could be people, that could be pleasure, that could be hobbies, it could be sports, it could be work. It could be something good. But if you put it ahead of God in your worship of him, then it becomes an idol. If you're not experiencing the evidence of this transformation of 
spiritual fruit and forsaking sin, it, it may be that, that you're not saved. Or it may be that you're a Christian who is not close to God and you need to be spirit-filled. If you go to the church website, you click on the tab sermon, on demand, you can go to Sunday morning, How to Be Spirit-Filled. Uh, we spoke about that two weeks ago. Four things that should be in our lives that we can be yielded and spirit-filled. Speaking to one another about God, uh, singing uh, spiritual songs in your heart, thanking God always, and then submitting to one another. One more thing, and that is the power of sharing your faith. The power of sharing your faith. Uh, I've given it into your notes there. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And the last words of Jesus before his ascension was, you're going to speak for me. You're going to have the power to be bold and to share what God has done for you. God has, has given you and I that great message to share with others. The book of Acts uh, speaks of that. Uh, Acts chapter 4, I've given the notes there. They prayed, the place was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They spake the word of God with boldness. And notice the unity. The multitude that believed were of one heart and one soul. We have a message to share with other people. And so the church grew with 3,000 and then 5,000 and then multitudes. But they were united in this mission. Many Christians have the wrong focus today. They think that if they sing the right songs, if they don't go certain places, if they are non-judgmental of others, that they are right with God. But they're missing the main thing. The main thing is sharing their faith. That's the great commission. And it really comes down to who do you love. If you love God, you're going to talk about God. If you love people, you're going to want to be able to share what he has done for you with others. Let me tell you the story of Richard Chan. Richard is on the left in this picture. He is the brother of Will. Uh, Richard was born in Scotland of Chinese parents. And so he has this Scottish accent, and yet he's uh, of uh, Chinese descent. And his brother, Will, and sister-in-law, Tammy, they're saved. They're members of our church. Two and a half years ago, uh, Will on the right got a call from Richard. Uh, you see, Richard contacted all of his family to say goodbye. Richard hit a low place in his life, and he didn't want to live anymore, and he was going to take his life, and I have permission from him to share with you today what God has done for him. Now, Will and Tammy said, no, 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 wait, 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 and they bought a ticket, and he went from Scotland, and he came to Philadelphia. He came to Pennsylvania, and they told him that they loved him. He was clinically depressed. He was in despair of life. He was an atheist. The first time I shared the gospel with him in my office, he was, he was totally despondent, completely hopeless. You could see it on his face. He had no purpose to live, nothing to live for. I gave him some stuff to read, and, and he went back to Will and Tammy's house, and they're sharing their faith. And then uh, Tammy's father, Frank Robison, uh, they took him to his workplace, and he, he began answering his questions. He began sharing the gospel with him. And after about four weeks, I saw Richard a second time. And there in my office, he opened his heart and he trusted Christ as a Savior. And he got baptized. And, and it was a great day. He returned to Scotland. He found a Bible-believing church. He came for a visit. I got to meet him uh, just a, a few days ago before he went back to Scotland. And I got to see him that day that he left and 
And do you know, do you know what Richard has now that he didn't have two and a half years ago? You can see it on his face. He has the joy of the Lord in his heart, and he's got the smile on his face because what he has now is he has the Lord. He has heaven as his home. He has confidence that his sins are forgiven. He's faithful in Bible study. He's faithful in church. He has a Christian girlfriend. He's teaching other college kids about, about Christ. I mean, kids from around the world uh, that attend the University of Edinburgh. I, I said, where do they come from? Are they just from Scotland? He said, no, no, about half are from Scotland and half are from China and Europe and Africa. They come to this university. They come to our church. He said, have you ever heard of Ravi Zacharias? I said, yeah. He says, well, I'm, I'm sharing uh, how Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior, he said, Pastor, I've surrendered my life to full-time ministry. Amen. I gave him a stack of books on how he can prepare these lessons, these Bible studies that he's sharing with these, these university kids from around the world. You see, what happened is, what happened is, is, is Tammy was saved in her Christian home, and then, and then Will got saved after coming to church here for years, and then, and then Will shares that with, uh, with, with his brother Richard, and now Richard is back in Scotland, and he's sharing his faith with these kids from around the world that are going to go back to their home. Do you see what's happening here? It is the evidence of the power of God sharing our faith. But if you're more concerned about being embarrassed or being concerned what people will think about you, be more concerned about what God thinks of you. There in your notes, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is power, the power of salvation, of transformation, and the power to share your faith. May we pray together. Father, thank you for the word of God and the power that is revealed here in our church family with those we come in contact with. With their heads bowed, with their eyes closed, I'd like to ask you a question this morning. Have you experienced the power of salvation? Do you know in your heart that heaven is your home? Do you know for certain that your sins are forgiven because there was a moment when you made a commitment to become a true and genuine follower of Jesus Christ? The Bible calls that becoming saved, becoming a Christian. If you know that for sure, with their heads bowed, with their eyes closed, would you simply raise your hand as a testimony? I'm not ashamed to be called a Christian. God bless you. Thank you. You may put your hands down. Now, maybe you raised your hand or maybe you didn't. My question is to you, do you know for certain that heaven's your home or do you have some doubt? You can be honest with God because he already knows the answer to the question. God wrote the Bible to take away your doubts. God wrote the Bible so that you can have assurance that you can know for sure that heaven is your home, your sins are forgiven, and the way to receive that forgiveness is to receive the gift, the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation is believing that Jesus died for you and rose again. It's not about joining a church. It's not about getting baptized. It's not about performing good deeds or sacraments. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. And so today, right now, you can call upon the name of the Lord, 
You can receive the gift right where you're seated. If you'd like to do that, I'd like to pray with you this morning. My prayer won't save you, but you can do what I did many years, many years ago. God will hear the prayer of your heart. If you want to pray with me today, I'm not going to call you down front. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. But if you sense the Spirit of God tapping on your heart, I invite you to do what I did and say yes. Pray with me right there in your seat. But your prayer must be earnest. It must be sincere. You can pray silently. God will hear your prayer. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Please save me today. I receive your free gift. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you'd say, Pastor, I, I just prayed with you and I meant it. I received God's gift. Would you simply raise your hand all over the auditorium? God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else, I pray with you today, and I meant it. Anyone else? Father, thank you for the gift of salvation, for the power of the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. May we stand together. We're going to sing a song of invitation this morning as we stand and sing. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, but his strength is powerful. And if you want to step out, if you want to speak to a pastor, you want to speak to a pastor's wife, if you want to pray at the altar, you come. If you have questions, you come. Or you can see us after the service as we sing together on the first verse. Amen. Thank you, ladies, for that this evening. What a blessing. Well, we had a great week at camp. We, uh, my wife and I were down south with our senior hires, and Dan and Sarah Wall went up to New England along with our junior hires, so thank you guys for being with them up there. I've got about five teenagers that are going to come up and share testimony in just a, a moment, but before we do, I wanted to share with you a little bit about what the Wilds is. Now, let me ask, first of all, how many of you here at one time or another have been on the campus of the Wilds? Could you raise your hand? Okay, quite a few of you. Wow. That's pretty amazing. I, I found out this last week that next year is the 50th anniversary of the Wilds serving young people from all around the world. And it's pretty awesome that we get to be a part of such a great ministry. And they've, they've been a blessing in my life, and I know that they've been a blessing in yours as well. So before we go any further, I'd like to show you a brief video that shows a little bit of what happened. Most of the video is actually from North Carolina, but then as we get to the end, you'll see some pictures from kids that went to both. So let's do that, and then we'll have the kids come in just a moment to share their testimonies.
wants you to know that he loves you he cares for you he willingly went to a cross and died so your sins could be forgiven and you could have eternal life and you would not have to die in your sins under the wrath of God and spend eternity under the judgment of God in the lake of fire that's what Jesus Christ the Savior did for you Jesus died on a cross for your sins that's the grace of God when Jesus was raised from the dead so you could have eternal life abundant life spiritual life that was the grace of God Jesus did it all Did they tell you how many people have died on this? Stop it! Can we just get down now? <laughs> Is that cable supposed to look like that? No! No! Three, two, one. Oh, wait a minute. Two,
Johan got off the giant swing, and he walked over to my wife and I, and he said, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> we didn't get that on video, unfortunately. As you can see, it was a fun week. We had a great time. But you know, it's a lot more than just fun and games. Uh, every night, there was a service. Every morning, there's a chapel. Uh, each cabin spends time doing their devotions together every day and then has a discussion, a follow-up time as well. There's um, a couple of afternoon times where they have sessions and just learn about real-life issues that they're dealing with. And uh, as we go into the, the kids today, we, we had many more that wanted to give testimonies. We actually have a couple that are sick, just run down from the week that couldn't share. But I'm going to ask Jake to come at this time. He's going to go first. He'll be our fearless leader here to go first. And then uh, we'll just go on down the line and share testimonies. Thanks, Jake. First off, what an amazing time I had at the Wilds. I had a privilege of going last year to North Carolina, and I thought that was good, but going to New England, it was even better the second time. And it was just amazing, all the fun and games we did, all that, all the, all the, it was incredible. And <laughs> our, uh, I went into the wilds knowing to myself that I had some problems, and I knew the wilds was going to be a good spiritual blessing, but I didn't know what an impact it would have. I went in realizing that it was becoming easier and easier to lie without uh, having a second thought. Just first thing right off the bat, whenever I felt I was going to get in trouble, I would just say something convenient to get me out of it. And uh, what do you know, the very first thing he talks about is controlling the tongue. And the memory verses we did, there were about the tongue. One of the memory verses we had to memorize was Psalm 1914 that says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength, my redeemer. And that really got to me, and I hopefully will be able to control my tongue from now on with God's help and keeping to reading his word, keeping the verses we memorize going through, through my head. And our uh, preacher, Will Gawkin, was absolutely amazing. In fact, he just so happened to go to the same college that my mom and my dad went to, so that was kind of cool. And it was beautiful up there. The cabins were great. The counselors really wanted to get you to love God more, get, get you into the word more, and it was just a tremendous blessing to be there. And bottom line, the wilds was amazing, and I hope I have the opportunity to go there next, next year. Thank you. Hello, my name is Natalie Wall. Last week, I had the amazing opportunity of um, being able to go to the wilds of New England. Although it was a time of um, fun, games, and exciting activities, it was a week of spiritual revival. I realized that um, devotions were very important, and it's just too easy to make a checklist of the day and oversee it. I also learned to um, be thankful and pray more. Thank you for everyone here who prayed for us to have a safe trip and um, 
spent many hours praying over us. Thank you. Hello, my name is Ian Grace, and I had the wonderful opportunity to go to New uh, North Carolina, my bad, uh, North Carolina for the second time. Uh, it was a great time, and I couldn't ask for a better one. Uh, the last week, uh, last week, I had the opportunity, oh my word, okay. This was not the biggest impactful week of my life, but um, it was still amazing. The preaching was fantastic by David Young. Uh, I think he was one of the better preachers to come. I mean, last year was, um, oh man, what was his last name? Skelly. Pastor Skelly, right. He was very good, but Dave Young was also great. Um, he didn't really, God didn't really speak to me until the last two days of camp, uh, but the last two days talked on devotions and giving my life to God. And so uh, for devotions, um, the, our, I went out with someone uh, that night, and I asked, uh, I want to do devotions more often. I want to get into that. And so he gave me a verse, and I'm actually going to use this Bible here because I left mine down there. Um, it was Isaiah 26.3. I will find it real quick. had it marked in my Bible, too, and I left it down there. Fantastic. Um, Oh, my word. Oh, here we go. All right, here we go. We're getting there. We're getting there. Why is this so hard to turn? Um, here it is. That will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he has trusted in thee. And when he showed me that verse, I was like, wow, that has everything to do with devotions, pretty much. And then I went back into the activity center, and they were having a fireside uh, testimony service. And what you guys saw on the screen is we would walk back, get a stick, and put it in the fire. And that was our testimony saying that we have nothing to fear, and we are on God's side, and we know that there's nothing between us and God. And so um, uh, during that time, they, we sang songs, and then they shared verses. And one of the verses was Isaiah 26.3, and I was like, what is going on? How is that even happening? Like, he shows me that verse, and then the same night, the same, like, hour, it shows up again. I'm like, okay, this has to mean something. And so I um, then decided, no, I, I definitely have to do devotions because that was fantastic. Um, so the Wilds actually gave us a devotional book, that, uh, and the, it was called Like Christ, and I'm going to be doing that. And I will be doing uh, a study on Psalms 119, and I'm going to be going through it, and I'm going to be reading it like a few times, maybe maybe twice, and hopefully get a lot out of that and take notes on it. And then I'm going to be going online and checking out some messages that I can write notes about and study those as well. Um, the like I was talking about before, my second decision was putting my life in God's hands, and. I learned that last week that it's not all up to God. You have to put work into it too. It, you have to. There's just a little bit. You don't have to put that much in, just a little bit. And he will do the most of it. And um, I'm praying continually. I started praying after I got home. 
Um, and I'm praying, I'm gonna continue to pray and ask what God has for my life. Um, uh, I thank all of those who uh, purchased for fundraising and all those who gave most generous donations. I thank all of you for that. And um, I thank you for um, the church. Thank you for the money you gave towards bus and the bus drivers. And I thank you, uh, Brother Matt, for the movies you brought because it made the 10-hour drive a little more bearable than it could have been. So I thank you very much and have a nice night. Well, my name is Johan. This is my first time going to the wilds of North Carolina. I had the best time of my life. When I got out the bus that, that day we came in, I felt something in my heart telling me, God's gonna speak to you this week. He spoke to me the first night. He talked about, the preacher talked about when you, you do bad things, when you get in fights with your parents. He talked about anger. And I, when I get angry, I go to my room and listen to songs that I should not be listening to. I went out for counseling one time and I, told my counselor that I was listening things that I should not be listening to when I was angry. He gave me verses that talks about anger and music, and that helped me a lot. And then Thursday morning, the preacher was talking about the issues of bitterness and the causes, and one of them was the death of someone I cared about. And, one, and the person that died that I care about was my friend Jason, I was angry with God. I was terrified why he had to die this way. And I brought it up when it was our follow-up with God and I, with our whole group. And I told our counselor, the whole group, I was like, I felt bitter about this. And then um, when me and my counselor had a one-on-one, -on -one, he told me, why, will you forgive the person that killed Jason? And I said, Yes, because God forgave us. And it felt good forgiving this person that killed my friend because God forgave us when he died on the cross for our sins. And then the last night, he was talking about preaching the gospel. And then something in my heart told me, God told me was, if I tell you to go out to the field and be a missionary, would you go? And I said, yes. And, and if, I, if God does call me to the ministry, I would love to go to my home country, Mexico, to preach the gospel. And I know the language there, so I could have better experience. And I just want to thank everyone that prayed for us and that got able to pay for my trip to the wilds. Thank you. My name is Alexis Meshi, and this was my very first time going to the North Carolina Wilds. It was totally awesome. The spiritual um, environment was just amazing, the encouragement. Um, at first, honestly, I didn't want to go. My mom 
said that I should, and I said, sure, that sounds great. And the closer we got, I was like, wait a second, I don't want to do this. And then I was like, oh, but it's far away from home. And then I slowly just started getting more and more worried. But then finally, the last week before, my friends were excited, and I realized, wow, God's going to work in my heart, and I'm going to have this spiritual fire back in me. And I was so excited to see what Dave Young um, was going to preach on and how he was going to speak his message. And honestly, his messages were good. They were very encouraging, and it was really awesome. Um, one of the things that happened at the Wilds, I have been learning sign language for about two years now, and God actually opened a door and allowed me to meet two people who were hard of hearing, and I was able to interpret um, to both of them and be able to have a conversation, and um, the one counselor went up to the one deaf girl and was started explaining the game, and I was like, oh, I'm like she's deaf, she can't hear. I'm like, do you need me to interpret? So I was able to, and that was a really cool experience. Um, at one point in the week, our youth group and our sponsors, they got together during our CLS time, and Matt Wendell asked a question that, yeah, I got to find it in my notes, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, he asked, how do we keep our commitments and not worry about what others think? Because sometimes we can go to the wilds and we can make all these commitments and be like, great, I can't wait. And then you go back and you see your friends and you're like, oh, they're going to see a change or oh, they're going to judge me for what I decided not to do because it's not in right now or something like that. And I, for me, I answered by its devotions and daily prayer. When I take the time every day to pray and to go through God's word and just focus on him, sometimes when you pray, call him dad, makes it more personal. And honestly, that encourages me and it gives me the confidence that I need to be able to stand in front of my friends and say, hey, I'm changing this. This is what God spoke to me about. So it was pretty awesome just being able to um, hear everyone like saying all their other opinions on how they also stand up to other people with their changes and how they're just encouraged in God's word. Um, lastly, I had an amazing counselor. She goes to PCC and her name is Abby. And um, she went one-on-one -on -one with everybody in our cabin and she just encouraged and loved us so much. And if we had something that happened or something that we wanted to come talk to her about, she just sat down and was like, talk girl, <laughs> tell me all your problems. And she was right there for all of us. And yeah, I was able to just form such a great relationship with her and she was so encouraging. And this whole trip to the wilds was such a blessing and I'm so glad that my parents pushed me to go. And I am so excited to go back next year also. Thank you. And man, I trust that was a blessing as much to you as it was to me. The students all raised their money to go. You gave so that they could go. And uh, there are many other expenses that go along with taking two groups on a trip like this. And so we just want to say thank you, church family, for making youth ministry a priority here, that we can do things like that and, uh, and, and get away and, and have that special time. Would you take your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 5? Acts chapter 5. And would you stand with me as we read together this evening? Acts chapter 5, starting at verse number 1.
The Bible says in Acts chapter 5, verse number 1, And a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and bought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Father, thank you so much for what you're doing here at this church, what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for these students and for their open hearts, how they received your word this weekend. I pray that our church family would come around them and support them and see them continue to grow to be more like you every single day. God, help us all to take the next spiritual step that we need to in our lives today. God, thank you for the opportunity to live for you and serve you. Bless our night now. Bless your word. In my pray. Amen. Please be seated. How many of you enjoy your food? <laughs> That's good. How many of you enjoy your food in sections? And as I say that, you might... You might Say, I, I, I know what you're saying. You, you don't want the gravy off of the mashed potatoes to mix with the green beans. Okay? You, you got to make sure you keep that nice and separate. How many of you are like that? Okay, a few of you. Now, some, the rest of you, or maybe not the rest of you, but some of you are like my brother. And that is, if it goes on the plate, it goes together. It, just, just, it all goes the same place, so you might as well just put it all together and kind of stir it all up. That might, be, that might be the way that you like to, to have your food. The problem is, in our Christian lives, sometimes we like to section off parts of our life. And tonight I want to bring to you a message entitled, Hold Out or Sold Out. You kind of gave away my thunder there, guys, showing that a little bit early. The Bible is full of incredible examples. Amazing examples of people that overcame things in their lives, that um, were able to do great things for God. And as a youth ministry, we get to come with our students, and we get to partner with you as, as families, and to teach them how they can live for God. And we have all these great examples that we can study and learn from. But sometimes, sometimes you need a bad example to kind of reinforce what you're trying to teach. How not to do something. And this is an example of how not to do something. And uh, this is another example of how not to do something. I've only used a jackhammer once in my life, but I did not use my feet. <sighs> I guess that one speaks for itself. If you can see the whole picture and, and backed it out, you would see he's on about the seventh story of, uh, of this building. Th there's a better way to do that. Th this one might take you a second. <laughs> Sometimes you need a bad example to teach a lesson of what we're supposed to do. When I was a teenager, Pastor Elstock brought a message on a night very much like this entitled The State of the Youth Group. I don't know if you remember that, Pastor Elstock. And he, he kind of gave uh, an example of why we have a youth ministry. That was many years ago. I was probably, I think I was probably in, in high school, so, so 15 or 16 years ago. And as I was praying about tonight, about what God would have for us to look at, I'd like to take this bad example in the book of Acts and, and give an example of what, why we have a youth group, what we're trying to teach our teenagers 
You see, here at Valley Forge Baptist, the reason we have a youth ministry is to partner with parents and families to help your students know that there is a God, that he is good, that he loves you, that he has a purpose and a plan for their lives, and then we get to learn and study and grow together discovering about that plan for them. So many good examples, a few bad examples. And one of those here is Ananias and Sapphira. And tonight we're going to see how Ananias and Sapphira were holdouts. And we're going to learn from them how we can be sold out. And, And first of all, we see here tonight that we need to live humbly. We need to live humbly. The enemy of humility is pride. And pride leads to selfishness. And selfishness always leads to compromise. Here we see these, these, uh, this couple that was trying to do a good thing, but it led down this path that led to them compromising their belief about who God was and what they were to do. And that pride led to their downfall. There are many examples of pride being um, the downfall of someone in the Bible. Pride got Satan kicked out of heaven. Pride turned Nebuchadnezzar into an animal. Pride saw Haman hanged on his own gallows. The list could go on and on. But to really get a good look and to understand what was going on here, you actually have to go back. So if you would go back just a couple verses into Acts chapter 4. And look at Acts chapter 4, verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Verse 36, here's the good example. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What you have going on here in chapter 4 is this young church is starting to grow and their influence is starting to grow. And Peter and John are preaching And they make such a ruckus that they are imprisoned. And through that process, they have the opportunity to preach in front of uh, many people. They have the opportunity to preach in in front of the religious officials there in Jerusalem. And through that process, bold preaching led to persecution. And the persecution led to growth. And the growth led to needs. You see... Earlier in the chapter, you see 5,000 people coming to know Christ. And the church is growing and growing and growing. And as the church grows, needs grow. And as the persecution grows, needs grow. And so those that had were taking what they had, they were selling it, and they were giving it back into the church. And so that's the climate that happens where we see Ananias and Sapphira making this decision, that they were going to participate in the offering. The problem was... Their reasoning for participating, participating comes out. Their goal wasn't just to give. If their goal was to give, they would have sold the land and given whatever they wanted to. But instead, their goal was to be lifted up among the people there in the church. You see, when you look back at verse 36 there, uh, and verse 35, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, there's many that are doing this, that are participating, but only one gets mentioned in the Bible. No doubt Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be mentioned. Unfortunately, they, they are mentioned, but it's 
for the, for the wrong reason. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem each other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Pride led them to this downfall. Pride will lead to selfishness. Selfishness will lead to compromise. But God will accomplish more through our conviction than he ever will through our compromise. The reason we have a youth ministry is because we want to help our teenagers love God and walk with him. We want them to be sold out. And to be sold out, we need to live humbly. Let's continue tonight. We also need to live sacrificially. Go on to chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and bought, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, in verse 2, it says that Ananias, with his wife's full knowledge, kept back for himself some of those proceeds of that land. If we're going to give, if we're going to live sacrificially, we can't hold back anything from God. But you see, the reason that they fell here isn't because they only gave part of the money. The reason is because they said they were surrendering, but instead were only partially surrendering. And surrender has to be full by its nature. Partial surrender is not surrender. I know for myself in our culture today, it's easy to miss out on this whole concept of sacrifice. It's easy to give, but it's hard to sacrifice. Often when we think about sacrifice, we think about giving monetarily, and that's important. We need to do that. But sacrifice is more than just a gift. How many of you have given a, a gift maybe at a Christmas or at a birthday, and as the person you gave the gift to opens the gift, you think to yourself, I think that would look good on me also. I, I think I should pick up one of those for myself. Listen, a, a gift is good, but God calls us to a step beyond, and that's sacrifice. What better example of sacrifice in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is Abraham, who takes his son up a mountain. God calls him to make this incredible sacrifice. His only son laying down on that altar Abraham raises his knife high in the air. Abraham wasn't thinking, well, I'll get another son. Abraham wasn't thinking about anything other than the fact that God gave me something, and if he takes it away, I won't get it back. And yet he was willing to make that amazing sacrifice, mirroring what God would do with his son, sending Jesus to the cross. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In order to be a sold-out Christian, we have to live a sacrificial life. And you know, it's amazing in this verse here, Romans chapter 12, what he refers to as the sacrifice. It's our bodies. You know, there's something in this room that we all have in common, and that is that we all have a body. God gives us many different talents, he gives us many different treasures, but he gives us each one life to live for him, 
And if we're going to live sacrificially, we have to give our life over to him. God's not trying to hold you back when he asks you to live sacrificially. He's trying to cut you loose so that we can live for him. As you go back to Acts chapter 5, verse number 3, the Bible says, But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? The next point is that we need to live honestly. Now this one may seem obvious in the text. Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? But listen, in our lives, we need to be honest with God. The real sin here was the lie. It wasn't that they didn't get, give everything. It was that the proceeds were theirs to do with what they wanted. The sin was the lie. We moved into a, a new house last summer, and uh, it has a basement. Our kids um, have the opportunity to have the basement kind of all to themselves. It's, it's unfinished, so we took all the toys downstairs, and we told the kids, you can go downstairs, you can play, and you can make a mess, and it's okay. Things dads shouldn't say to their kids. The problem was our kids have never had a basement before, and so they were kind of scared of the basement. They would not go down there. They wouldn't spend any time. And uh, my son was just starting to do the stairs, so he really couldn't go down by himself anyway. But my daughter, Madison, who's in the room tonight, she, she just wouldn't go down. And so we did everything we could to bribe her to try to get her. That way, mommy and daddy could be upstairs and get some things done, and she could go downstairs and enjoy herself and kind of be in a, a, a private area where, where she couldn't mess anything up too bad. We could just kind of let her go down there. The problem is she would not go. And so after weeks of trying to, to coax her to go down, finally one night my wife was out with uh, my son Austin, and so Madison and I were there, and uh, I kept telling her, hey, it'll be fun to go downstairs, just trying to break through that barrier. And then my phone rang, and uh, it, was, it was time sensitive, so I had to take it. And so I leaned over to Madison, and I said, why don't you go downstairs? There's some toys down there that are for you that Austin's not allowed to play with. If you go downstairs and get those out, I'll come play with you as soon as I get off the phone. And just like that, she hopped up and she ran downstairs. The problem was, the toy she got out was a toy that really she shouldn't have out, had out by herself. You see, at the time, she was just three years old, and she got out a large box of markers, <laughs> which normally she wouldn't play with except if we, if we weren't there. But because I had given her explicit instructions to get out the toys that she wanted, that she knew she couldn't have when Austin was there, she went for the markers. And so after I got off the phone, I realized that she had obeyed and she had gone downstairs, and I was... Proud dad that she finally conquered that fear. And I walked down the stairs around the corner, and I stopped in the stairwell. There's no door at the basement, so you can hear it down. I just stopped because I thought, it's really quiet down there. I wonder what's going on. And as I came around the corner, she quickly stood up, put her hands behind her back, <laughs> and walked over to me. And as I looked at her, I said, Madison, did you get the markers out? Because she knows she really shouldn't have had them out without me there. And she said, no, Daddy. <laughs> the problem was, she hadn't been coloring a coloring book. I don't think I told my wife this story yet. <laughs> she hadn't been coloring a coloring book. She had been coloring her face and her arms. And as she stood there innocently saying, no, Daddy, I did not get the markers out. 
she lied. You know, we do that with God. What's crazy is, not only, not only should we not lie to God, but God knows. He was there. And, and as I, I helped to clean Madison's face off and try to get all the marker off before Mama got home, which I think we accomplished, God brought that to my mind. How silly, how foolish it is to lie to a God who loves us, who made us, who has a plan for our lives. It's simple, but it's important. And if there's a clear message in the story, it is that when we are holdouts or phonies or hypocrites, when we live dishonestly, we will face God's judgment. Next, we need to live fearfully. Live fearfully. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you go on in Acts chapter 5 down to verse number 9. Look with me, verse number 9. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came in and found her dead, carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. Verse 11. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. And great fear came upon the church and upon as many that have heard these things. As I read this, as a, as a student, as a boy, I remember hearing the story over and over again. I was imagining myself being afraid after just seeing two people killed for lying to God. I don't know that that was the case, though. See, there's two kinds of fear. There's two different approaches to fear in our lives. We actually learned about this in Sunday school today, and it just fits so perfectly. I'd like to share it with you. And here are the two approaches. The fear in our lives can motivate us to live two different ways. Fear that says, so that, and fear that says, because. Let me explain. Motivation in our life that is a so that motivation is this. I will do so that I will get. I will obey, in the case of my daughter, so that I will not get punished. I will go to church so that God will love me more. I will witness so that I will receive a crown in heaven. I will so that the outcome. Fear can drive that. Fear that I will miss out. Fear that I will be rejected. Fear that I won't please God enough. But there's another kind of fear. And that's the because kind of fear. And this motivation is different because it goes like this. Because God loves me, I will. My daughter, because my daddy loves me, I will obey him. Because Jesus Christ died for me and loves me and has already accepted me, I will walk with him. I will live for him. I will sacrifice for him. Do you see the difference in the fear? I'm not afraid, but I am in awe of a God that loves me and has a plan for my life 
and wants to use me in an incredible way that I can't even understand. And that's why we have a youth group is because we want our teenagers to understand that the fear that they should live in is not an afraid fear. It's not a so that fear. It's a because fear. We want them to live every day knowing that they have been accepted by the God of the universe and that he has a plan for them. And all they have to do is accept that, live in that, and God will use them in an incredible way. Fearing God means that you honor him above all else. It means that you respect him above all else. It means that you love him above all else. Can I explain it this way? In our lives, we have sections, okay? We have Jesus, we have family, we have fun, we have church. We have work. We have all different kinds of priorities, okay? And what we do is we try to keep Jesus first, right? We want to keep him first. Make sure that's correct. And sometimes the priorities, they, they get out of whack. Sometimes we make bad decisions and we're constantly fighting. Okay, how do I keep Jesus first? And Jesus should be first. The problem with this thinking is it's missing a very important aspect of our lives and living in a true fear of God. And that's this. This is not a good representation of Jesus and compared to the rest of our lives. This is. And instead of just trying to put Jesus first, we need to take everything else in our lives, if we have a true fear of God and understand that he has a plan for our lives and he wants to use every part of our life, we need to take all the little sections and we need to put them in Jesus. We need to give them to Jesus. We need to hand them over and surrender them. Our priorities will stay correct if Jesus isn't just the first priority. He has to be the priority. And then everything else that we do in our life goes through that lens. It's because of what he did for us. It's because he loves us so much. Why does it matter? Why should we be sold out? Will God kill you? Don't think so. Probably not. But if the Holy Spirit is trying to guide you, trying to lead you, if he's trying to tell me to do something, to, to point me in a direction, to witness to this person, to surrender this air of my life, if he's trying to do that and I don't obey, God doesn't promise that he'll keep knocking on the heart of our door forever. He'll take us to heaven. He'll, he'll, he'll protect us. He'll love us. But if he's got a plan for us, we have to obey so that he can use us. Surrender. We have to live fearfully. If we will be sold out with all that we have, God will use us for his glory. He'll use us every day. He'll give us the strength and power that we need to overcome all the giants in our life. He'll open doors that we could never have opened ourselves but we need to live humbly. We need to be sold out. We need to live sacrificially, putting all of our life on the altar, our, our bodies, everything that we have. We need to live honestly. And lastly, we need 
to live fearfully. Not afraid, but in awe of who God is and all that he's done for us. And then, and then we will be sold out followers of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, so many examples of men and women who loved you, who were surrendered to you, who lived for you. And God, some examples that show us how not to live. God, help us this week. Help us to be examples that our young people can follow. God, help us to be sold out so that the youth and the students in this church can look to us and understand what it, what it means to be a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ. Help us to live for you completely and fully in our lives every day. Pastor. Our Father, tonight we truly want to be sold out. We know the young people are looking at us, and I pray that they might see faithful followers of Christ in all of us, that we might leave the footprints, the footsteps for them to follow in as we follow Christ. Bless our time of invitation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing a song of invitation tonight. What a friend we have in Jesus. As we fall in love with Christ and follow him, he will be our best friend. As we sing together in the first verse, what a friend we have in Jesus.